BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hi there, I'm Randad Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, we explore the nature of pain with Heider Verich, a doctor at Brigham and Women's Hospital who lives with chronic pain after severely injuring his back while in medical school. In my darkest days, says Verich, I wasn't even sure I could ever practice medicine at all. This hour, we look at the many things that affect our experience of pain and hear about new ways to understand and live with pain rather than always fighting to avoid or eradicate it. Verich's new book is The Song of Our Scars. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Physician Heder Verich says pain is universal, one of the most consistent things we all experience. And yet, how we hurt is so personal to us that it's the one thing we truly own. In his new book, The Song of Our Scars, Verich shows us pain is more than just a physical sensation. It's shaped by social and cultural experiences. And Verich himself lives with chronic pain. He's a doctor at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston and an assistant professor at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Verich, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much for uh, having me talk about this. What did happen to you when you were in medical school in, in Pakistan that means you now do live with chronic pain? So, so one of the things that... Um, pain does is that it solidifies memory more than almost anything else we can experience. So to this day, it's almost 14 or 15 years ago, but I remember that day uh, extremely vividly. Um, but it started off uh, as just another day. I was a, you know, as, I, as you mentioned, I was a medical student in Pakistan. I was um, at the gym. Uh, and, you know, as you may, I was a bit of a jock. Uh, I had been perfectly healthy until then. And so illness was uh, more of a was a technical interest was something that I was learning as a as a medical student, but not something that I had really lived with or felt or experienced. Uh, but that changed uh, while I was lifting weights and um, uh, I was lifting uh, I, was, I was doing a, I was lifting weight weights on the bench when I still can remember hearing a click uh, in my back. It was pretty loud, mm. and for the first maybe like half a second. Um, everything just kind of my body shut down. Uh, the weights came crashing down on my chest. I couldn't breathe, um, and I couldn't even I couldn't even ask for help. I was in such uh, sort of panic 
until I did. And, you know, the other students who were around helped me out and took me to the emergency room where, you know, I think uh, because I was known to the staff there, uh, they took me to a side room, gave me a shot of a, a painkiller and told me everything's going to be okay. And that's really what I believed as well. I think all of us experience some type of acute pain uh, often. Uh, and I thought that this is going to be one of those things where it's going to hurt real bad at the start and then it's yes. going to go away. And then I'm just going to be back to doing things the way I was doing. But um, unfortunately, this pain uh, did not get better. Uh, and every day I waited for it to get better every day. But every day I slept, I slept in pain. I woke up, I woke in pain again. I was hoping that, you know, one day I would wake up and it all feel like a dream, but it didn't. And and then, you know, I um, I started to lose hope. Um, went to a surgeon who who said who you know looked at my films uh, standing in the hallway and just told me that he could operate on me, but that if he op- that a back that's once been operated is never the same. And I was a young young person, my whole life in front of me, and I could just see everything, every vision ahead of my life kind of fall apart. My yes. dream of being a physician, uh, really being able to be a functional member of society just didn't seem like something that I would be able to achieve any longer. You write so poignantly about this in your book. You say that the day that pain became a part of your life, that it became an infestation that would shape the narrative arc of your life. You also talk about how at one point you started to believe that the only way to release yourself from its vice, as you put it, would be to end your life. Can you talk a little bit about just the very dark places this kind of, you know, major shift towards something that would not go away, the dark places that chronic pain can take us? Um, it's a dark place, and often it's a very, very narrow place. Um, your life shrinks so much when you have chronic pain. Um and my, you know, something as simple as a, as a staircase is give, would give me nightmares. Uh, my life was basically my dorm room, and oftentimes that and that was it. And unless you came to see me there, there's no way that I would be able to go out and see you or do all the things I love doing. And I, you know, I had these dark thoughts about, well, how is this pain going to end? And and I and I, I I came to a point where I felt like the only that it was such a part of me at that point, that it was so much a part of my existence, that it was um, that the only way that I could find relief was to release myself from that existence, and it was and it was really hard, and you know I um, and 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 that that day. Um, I, I still think about I still think about that dark time and, and, and I'm glad to report I'm I'm better, I'm way better. But it took a long time and took an army and a whole lot of good luck. Uh, hmm. things that so many other people with chronic pain just don't have. Hmm. Well, I wanna get into some of that, but one of the things that I was really struck by was as bad as your pain was and is, you you also called it in your book unremarkable in that you are far from unique, and you talk about how an estimated 1.5 billion people live with chronic pain worldwide, including one in five Americans. Could you help us understand first what what 
pain is in the scientific sense of the word? Pain is something, even even though we experience it so often, and even though we, uh, you know, as physicians, we it's it's the most common reason why people come to the hospital um, seeking any type of care. It it's something that's actually not very well understood. Although um, I do think that that's changing. Uh, and if you look at the if you look at the definition of pain, which was just uh, redefined not too long ago. It's it's basically defined as, uh, and I quote, an unpleasant sensory and emotional experience associated with or resembling that associated with actual or potential tissue damage. Mm-hmm. And and you can just see in that definition how many times um, the the committee members who helped define who come up the, came up with this definition had to hedge because pain doesn't follow any rules. Um, pain is as much a sensation that you feel in a body as it is an emotion that you feel as much as a recurring memory or a traumatic memory ricocheting around in your brain. And what the science suggests is that pain is perhaps the most complex experience that we, that we, that we as human beings ever feel. It is something that uh, is shaped by so many forces much bigger than us, forces like um, Forces like racism, forces like sexism, forces like politics, forces like um, imperialism, uh, forces like the relationship between a patient um, and their witness, and whether that witness is their caregiver, uh, their loved one, uh, or a physician. And so even though when we hurt, it it can feel very... um, Essentializing it, it forces us to sort of contemplate only ourselves because that is what pain wants us to do. It wants us to focus on ourselves and and try and protect ourselves at any cost. It really what 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 we feel in that moment is something that is that is far bigger um, than anything that at least I could have imagined when I was in that room by myself. So pain is both. Um a physical and a psychological state, like a physical sensation and a psychological state at the same time. You're saying. So, so let me. So this is the this is the part where uh, uh, I'm going to drop some jargon, but I'm going to make it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so just fair warning. I'm sure you'll listeners. explain it. Yes. Uh, so, if you think about what happens, so so unlike, say, for example, when we see something, light is something that exists in nature, but pain is not something that exists in nature. We can feel things that we touch, but then there's some things that we touch that turn that that the body deems uh, noxious, as you may. And and so the, sensa- the the purely physical sensation that detects physical damage or unpleasant physical things in our environment is something called nociception, and nociception is an unconscious. Uh, experience. It is not something that you feel. But nociception, say, let's say someone uh, pricked you in the shoulder with a needle. Uh, those signals will go um, in your nerves, through your, uh, up your spine, into your brain. And there the brain is going to put all its energies in creating the pain experience. And this is an experience that is as much informed by that physical sensation, but as much as by your emotional state your, the context of what happened. So let's say that that pin was something, you were walking in a dark alley and you feel something sharp in your shoulder. 
your reaction and how you feel might be extremely different. But let's say you were getting a vaccine and you and, and someone and you knew what was going on. You may feel that might feel very, very different. Your reaction to it may be very, very different. And, you know, one of the uh, and one of the things that happens to pain. Uh, and so most of the times we think about nociception will lead to pain, but that is not always the case. In fact, you know, one, of the, one of the most important studies that was ever done in this field was done at the time of World War II. Um, There's an anesthesiologist, Henry Beecher. He, uh, was, uh, he was stationed in Italy in, in a field hospital, and he started surveying soldiers who were returning from the battlefront with massive injuries. Uh, and he found that 60% of those reported no pain. Even though they had gaping wounds, they had you know their skin was ripped off, etc. Um, and yet there are other conditions in which you may not have nociception per se, but you may feel pain. So think about say phantom limb pain, in which for example people who've had amputations can have um, can 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 really have these recurrent traumatic. Uh, experiences of pain in limbs that have long uh, sort of left them. And and one of the interesting things here is that people who have had a traumatic amputation, so for example, like a soldier uh, in a minefield who loses a leg is much more likely to develop phantom limb pain than say someone who's never had a leg to begin with, um, etc. So that moment that the trauma that your body absorbs in that moment is something that can can recur in your uh, in your body and can be felt in your body and in your mind uh, yes. for, for years and years much uh, uh, after that uh, incident. And in fact, um, this decoupling, if you may, uh, between pain and nociception, uh, be between what you feel in your brain and what is coming from beneath, uh, is perhaps most clear in patients who have chronic pain because at some point the, the the body just learns those learns that experience it, it the, the the experience of pain becomes so indelibly painted into our memory that we don't even need anything coming from downstairs to to stimulate uh the response uh in our minds well i would love to explore more about chronic pain which we'll do after the break you're listening to forum i'm mina kim Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about pain, the science that underlies it, how we experience it, with Heder Verreich, author of The Song of Our Scars, The Untold Story of Pain, which is actually out today. He's a physician at Brigham and Women's Hospital. And I want to invite you, our listeners, to join the conversation. How has pain affected your life? 
Or what would you like to better understand about the science of pain? You can call us at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. You can reach us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum. You can email us, forum at kqed.org. Just before the break, Dr. Varad, you were talking about how pain is is sensitive to context and how our brain really has a central role, I think you were describing, in shaping how we feel pain. And, and one of the things you do say in your book is that chronic and acute pain are distinct things, and the brain treats them differently. Can you explain what you mean by that? One of the studies that I found extremely interesting and one of the questions I really wanted to understand was what what makes one pain acute, uh, sorry, what makes one type of pain turn into chronic pain? Uh, why did my injury that day become chronic pain when others hadn't? I think my first sort of hunch was that maybe it was the severity of the injury that I had had. Uh, and turns out that that's actually not true. The, the, when, when researchers have looked at uh, that specific question, they've found that the, in, the severity of the initial injury has actually has very little relationship with um, whether someone goes on to develop chronic pain or not. The other thing was, well, maybe it was the, 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 all the horrific findings they saw on my MRI of my back, which found that I had this disc prolapsing and was you know jutting into my spine, et cetera. And, and yet, researchers have found that those types of abnormalities, even things that sound pretty bad, like a prolapsed disc, is actually found very commonly in folks who have, um, who are just walking, who are just totally normal, have never even had any issues with their back. And, and so this is one of the fundamental things that, you know, and especially talking to researchers who've done the research, one of the things that I'd like to, that the science does not support is that a that chronic pain is simply acute pain prolonged. It does seem to have a very distinct um, phenotype, if you may, or a distinct character, not just in how it affects us as human beings, but also the signature of chronic pain in the brain can be very different. So one study that was done uh, by uh, Vanya Apkarian, who is a, um, sci- who's a scientist in Northwestern, showed that as people's pain turned from acute to chronic pain, the parts of the brain that were more responsible for that experience turned initially from the parts of the brain that are more um, associated with um, more physical sensations or with just the where and whens of pain to more emotional aspects uh, or or places in our brain that are, are handle things like fear and anxiety and trauma. And all those things appear to be much more involved in chronic pain than they are um, in acute pain. And this is one of the reasons why I think we've had so much difficulty in treating patients with chronic pain is because we just automatically assume that a lot of our therapies that work so well for patients who are you know, acutely um, in distress uh, would also work for patients who are in distress for a longer period of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as we've seen that that's not really the case, in fact, many common therapies that work very, very well for people who are in acute distress don't seem to help as much for people with chronic pain. So mm-hmm. it does seem like they are there is a significant difference between them, and it's not just that one happens over a shorter period of time versus the other. Well, the sister Curtis writes, for three years, my partner experienced chronic pain in her neck. 
and arms that affected every part of our lives. We got to the point where we tried to where we tried cortisone injections near her spine and we got close to deciding on spinal fusion surgery. Then one day we randomly came across some YouTube videos that led us to the book Healing Back Pain by Dr. John E. Sarno, now deceased. Just reading this book ended up eliminating 90% of her pain. The upshot, the mind and body are connected. The unconscious mind can cause pain in the body. And just this knowledge can provide a lot of relief. Um, and then this other listener tweets, don't regarding dealing with chronic pain, don't dwell on it. I think these two comments are interesting because they're bringing up a couple of things that you're you're raising. One, of course, is that the the, the mind and the body are connected on this. But I'm also reminded of how you described when you were writing this book and you just really going through the process of right. thinking deeply about pain. And it was very consuming that your own physical pain seemed to worsen and you wondered if they were connected. It's, you know, pain is uh, the loudest alarm in our body. As soon as it goes off, the, the function of pain is to direct all of your energies uh, towards it and making sure that we uh, do everything we can to relieve ourselves of it. So attention is the fuel that fires uh, up pain. And, you know, that's one of the reasons why the COVID-19 pandemic has just been, for some people, has been so horrific. People who are living with chronic pain is because, and, you know, I've been I've been talking to patients and I've been, I've been reading up what they're writing. You know, patients are saying, I've had... Had nothing left to think about other than my pain. I can because of uh, social isolation, people have been more focused on their bodies, and this is something that I experienced myself. I think I think most writers would say that writing a book can be a pain, uh, but in my case, it was a a literal uh, sensation yes. because, as I, as I mentioned, after you know, years of physical therapy and really changing my lifestyle uh, completely, I had been. I'd been able to get the pain under control, even though it shaped so much of my life and prevented me from doing many things that I wanted like doing. But during this course of this book, I had so much pain. I, I, uh, I had all, of all sorts, none of it really made biological sense. And a part of it, and a part of me began to think that maybe it was because I had been obsessing about pain and going back to those days when I was in pain so often and so frequently that the echo of those of the of those of those distressing moments had returned back to haunt me mm. um, but but I think that I think what the, what your listeners are saying is absolutely true one one the first thing here is that pain is not just something that an individual experiences it, it affects every single person piece of their life, their caregivers, uh, their employment, their ability to work, their ability to, uh, and really who they are as members of society, but also that pain is something that that if if that 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 attention only worsens, which is why some therapies like hypnosis, for example, if you're hypnotizable, can be a real bomb for patients in chronic pain. Yet at the same time, when someone dismisses our pain, it's also deeply painful or can exacerbate our pain. I think you even touched on this earlier in the conversation when you talk about how pain is racialized and gendered, because we also hear so often that that women and people of color have their pain dismissed. Absolutely. I mean, one of the one of the most fascinating, well, not fascinating, one of the most deeply disturbing studies um, that I read um, was a study that was published um, 
in the journal JAMA Pediatrics, and this was a study of uh, of, of children of, of children with acute appendicitis. So this is a, so acute appendicitis is a very common condition, extremely painful, um, and one would think that if we would be biased in who we give pain medications to, it would not be for a condition like appendicitis, which is short-lived, very well-known, can easily be diagnosed on a CT scan. And yet, uh, the chances that a black child child in severe pain would get um, strong painkillers like opioids, which are perfectly reasonable in this condition, in, f- in fact, recommended in this condition, as opposed to a white kid, is only about a fifth. And so... If you've lived, uh, and, and, and we see this across the board, especially for conditions, both for, both for uh, minorities, but also for, for women, that especially when you have a condition that we don't have a blood test for, which, we don't, which won't show up on a CT scan, which, which, which doesn't have some type of classic finding, then the, and, and if the only thing physicians are left with is your word as a patient, then our deepest biases unfortunately come into play. And which is why, if if anything, there is this one. Re- there's been this body of evidence which actually suggests that black people, in fact, have a lower threshold for pain. And yet, there was this really interesting experiment that was done in which the researchers, for a change, actually had a black researcher study patients instead of the usual white researcher, and found that once you had someone who was of the same race or who looked the same as you, that that difference went away. Yeah. And so, so, if, so if, you've been, if you've always been uh, delegitimized when you go to the doctor, when you always had to prove how uh, authentic what you feel is, it's going to create a huge fracture in how much you trust the system and how, much, how well the system can treat you. And mm-hmm. certainly it's very, very clear. We, we're, we're failing every patient or most patients in chronic pain, but especially women and especially racial and ethnic minorities. Dr. Viraj's book is The Song of Our Scars. And we've got calls coming in. Let me go to Natalia in Oakland. Hi, Natalia. Hi, how are you? Thank you so much for having me uh, ask this question. Thanks for calling. What would you like to say? Well, today's topic really speaks to me as someone that has a chronic condition. I have Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, which is a genetic condition that affects all of the connected tissue and pretty much that whole, the way our whole body is built. And I was wondering if a, your guest could speak a little bit on uh, the topic of um, how expectations affect pain. And uh, just to give you an example, for example, people with Ehlers-Danlos suffer many types of symptoms and a lot of different types of chronic pain. But when asked, I would always say that the worst one is the one that you experience for the first time or the newest type of pain because you don't know what to expect. Like mm-hmm. the first time I had costochondritis, just an ex- inflammation in the chest and the sternum, I thought I was going to die. Each breath I took was the worst. And since then, I've had way worse flare-ups of that, but I, they were not the worst that I've experienced because I know I knew what to expect. So hmm. I was wondering if there's any studies or anything to yeah. back this up. Yeah, because you know when it's a crisis, at one time saying, you you know there's hope, but when your brain goes into those dark places that uh, your guest spoke at the beginning, that I know very well, it's when you don't know what to expect or whether there's hope at, or a light at the end of a tunnel. Natalia, thanks. What do you think, Dr. Varage? 
Uh, Natalia, thank you so much for calling in, and I I hope you um I I hope you can uh, your disease uh, gives you as much respite as it can. Anticipation, expectation, memory. I mean, these things are so uh, connected to how we experience pain. Uh, because one of the first things that pain does, and one of the one of the emotions that pain is most deeply related to, is fear. And the reason that is the case is because pain is at its heart a teacher, and it, it is there to to protect us. That is why, um, as as we have evolved, we have actually become even more exquisitely sensitive to pain because our because our body has developed even more <laughs> sensitive ways to um, to 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 make sure that we don't make mistakes, so that we don't grab that hot skillet or we don't poke our fingers into the electrical socket. And 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 anticipate and so one of the things that I think it's really important, especially if physicians, for example, know that the pain is not from a life-threatening condition, then that we made that clear and we reassure patients that you don't have to fear this pain as distressing as it may be. Uh, but the opposite can be true as well. I mean, we know that people who've had, for example, some type of trauma in the past, whether that's a sort of classic medical type of trauma, uh, such as if they've had a heart attack. Uh, the next time they have pain, they're going to take it a lot more seriously. It might actually cause them a lot more distress. They might be much more likely to call 911. Um, but even other forms of trauma, uh, such as people who've grown up um, and experienced childhood abuse, these patients are. This is childhood abuse is actually one of the one of the most common uh, sort of factors that can turn acute pain into chronic pain. And so, so yes, I mean. As much as that the pain matters what we're experiencing in the moment, that experience is shaped so much by everything that happened to us before. Hmm. Let me go to caller Eileen in Mill Valley. Hi, Eileen. Hi. Um, I just wanted to um, say that one of the ways that my chronic pain, which is migraine, which I have 24-7 for 56 years now, and... Um, what it, I've experienced or people have told me is that uh, when they first see me, they're put off because uh, my pain shows in my face. I, it shows in terms of tension, hmm. and um, that puts people off. Um, and I try to relax my face as much as I can, but I'm not real good at it. And um, so once you get to know me, they find out why my face looks like that. But it, it does have get that reaction in people. And I uh, just wanted to share that oh, no. unfortunate I mean, side effect of it. Well, thank you for sharing that. And, I, and I'm sorry that just on top of what you're experiencing with regard to migraines, that is also something that you experience as well. And it reminds me, Dr. Verich, of another point you made, which is, that pain is a social experience. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and your reaction to what Eileen is sharing? Yes. Uh, I think there's this narrative around pain that pain is incommunicable. In fact, it's been written that that pain uh, is something that, you know, language falls short of. And I I, I, I don't know I don't know about that. It may be the case for some, but one of the most important things that pain is yearns for is to uh, be witnessed, to be to be to be seen by others. In fact, 
you know, if you look at every, uh, if you know, if, if you look at all the animal research that is done, which is where most of the actual, most pain research is able to be done ethically, or at least semi-ethically, the only way that physician that that the researchers can uh, can see if the animal is experiencing discomfort is by through their behaviors and so so it is so so i'm not surprised that people can see uh, that, uh, that 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 you are in pain that you're in distress but their reaction to that seems to be um seems to be so toxic um I, I think that uh, pain can be such a huge stressor on so many relationships, and I've, I've, you know, as part of the book, I spoke to caregivers of people who take care uh, to take care of patients with pain, to understand just, you know, what are the things that chronic pain can do to relationship, and mm. and and it is one of those things. It's this invisible epidemic. As much as we talk about um, the, the the fact that you know one in five Americans and people around the world live in chronic pain. Um, it can have a sort of enormous reaction beyond just that individual. Although I, I do hope that people will become more empathetic about chronic pain. I do hope that people will see and view disability in a different way than they have in the past. Um, and, and, and hopefully we'll be able to get over some of the stigma that is associated with this condition. Yes, you're really talking about the paradox that, that pain, as you say, sort of needs to be performed to be recognized, yet at the same time, um, it can take, I think, as you say, a person's community away from them, um, depending on how others react to that pain and are often turned off by seeing others in pain, unless they're, say, a spouse or somebody who feels deeply connected to them. It's uh, it, again, pain is all about, about about context. I mean, there's studies showing that, you know, men when they are uh, uh, when when they're being studied for their pain by around uh, women who are deemed uh, attractive, uh, that they're less likely to show their pain. Uh, but if they're around someone who they love and they trust, etc., that they're more willing to be uh, expressive about it. I mean, we see this. Uh, we really see. I mean, and this is not just something that's restricted to humans. Even in animal research, we've seen something that's similar um and but yes it is a it is an it is a disability it is in fact the most common cause of disability in the world it just back pain alone is the number one cause of years lost to disability not just here in the united states but around the world and i hope that we can start sh- hearing these stories more so that we can develop the empathy needed support for forum comes from san francisco opera Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking this hour about the the physiology of pain and also the social and cultural experiences that shape 
the way we hurt. We're talking with Dr. Heder Vereich, author of The Song of Our Scars, also a physician at Brigham and Women's Hospital and the VA at Boston Healthcare System, and an assistant professor at Harvard Medical School. If you'd like to join the conversation to tell us how pain has affected your life, maybe what's made it worse or, or what's helped even, um, you can also ask any questions you'd like about the science or treatment of pain that you want to better understand. Our phone number is 866-733-6786, our email address forum at kqed.org. You can also post your thoughts on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum. Let me go to caller Bob in Cuyama Valley. Hi, Bob. Hello. How are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm doing well. Um, it's a very interesting uh conversation to me i i grew up in a in a, a home with neglect and poverty and uh dental care was uh somewhat lacking and i i suffered in my teenage years uh, i had actually three teeth that um uh fillings fell out and i was too embarrassed to mention because of the expense and everything the way people talked about dental expense in my house so i just didn't report it and, and i just lived with it it was very painful and that was one experience I had. And then the emotional pain. I think emotional pain might even be worse. Hmm. Then later in my young, tw- early 20s, I uh, quite, you know, I took care of all that when I became an adult and got a job and paid my own <laughs> expenses and matured, you know, normally and naturally. But then I, I got involved with yoga and I lived for about four years in an ashram and I you know, I wasn't seeking any, you know, special insights into pain. I was just, you know, pursuing a a spiritual course. And, but, but during that time I had to have uh, some dental work and, and it happened to be a root canal. And I remember the dentist saying, well, you're very unusual uh, in your response to pain. I said, well, what's that? He said, well, when I get close to the root, most people's eyes, the pupil dilates yours, it closed down. And then later other circumstances, um, People told me, I, you know, I, you, you seem to have a high tolerance to pain, to pain. Now, my pain is not spine. I know people who have that. There's other kinds of pain. I'm just talking about my own experiences, two different um, um, phases of my life. And the mental adjustment, I became a much more spiritual person, not just through the yoga and stuff, but subsequently. And just my own attitude somehow, hmm. um, it... it I'm a different person and pain, I experience pain differently. So my pain is not everybody else's. I I get that. Well, thanks for for sharing your story, Bob. I'd love to get your thoughts on on the types of things he's sharing, because it does touch on different things that you discuss in your book, Dr. Barrett. Thank you, Bob. And and, and I'm I'm sorry to hear about the rough uh, experiences growing up, but so glad to see that you've taken control of your life. That's amazing and beautiful. Um, I think what Bob is saying is, I think, reflective of what I've talked to everyone about, uh, you know, patients, physicians, is that really your whole life uh, comes to affect your threshold for pain. And not, it's it, and, and, and even things like um, epigenetics uh, can come into how um, your experience is, is, uh, might be different uh, than another. There have been uh, studies in which people have looked at twins, for example, and I've seen how uh, they, uh, because of different life experiences that they've had, 
their threshold for pain is actually different and it's shaped by their circumstances. It's shaped by their, their environments and interactions and the choices uh, that they made or were made for them. And so really, um, but, but I do want to say that I think we have, you know, also developed this culture in which this sort of high threshold for pain has really become this, you know, it, you know, I think many people will, um, uh, you know, p- patients who will report being in pain, uh, they will be judged because, oh, they don't have a high threshold, they're weak, yes. et cetera. And I don't, I don't see that there's any special value in um, being able to withstand pain. Uh, pain yearns to be communicated, pain yearns to be shared. And in fact, as we uh, evolve, uh, we are going to increasingly become more sensitive to pain because that's the only thing evolution cares about is making sure that we report all threats, that we detect all intruders, uh, and that we uh, are as xenophobic as possible with regards to any type of foreign threat within our bodies. Um, and, and I hope that um, physicians can be respectful of that and uh, that we as a society don't don't see, uh, equate sort of having this quote, high threshold for pain as being a value judgment on, on, on people. Yes. It's interesting. The way that Americans uniquely deal or our culture of pain, the things that we value, the things we don't, and our desire really to try to avoid and eradicate it is also contribute just to the way that that pain is treated. I mean, Sue writes, for example, do opiates work for chronic pain? If so, why is it not okay for everyone with chronic pain to get opiates from their doctor for the rest of their life? So so that's a that that, that brings me into talking about opioids and and really, I mean, I think America has a very special and sort of challenging relationship with opioid opioids. Americans constitute 5% of the world's population and consume about 30% of the world's opioid supply. And and American physicians are much more likely to prescribe opioids for conditions that few other conditions are. I mean, one study I was looking at is that American dentists, for example, are 37 times more likely to prescribe opioids than British dentists, for example. And yet, people who were prescribed opioids by their dentists are actually more likely to report pain. And in fact, the if you look at the highest quality data that we have for patients with chronic pain and the use of opioids, and this was a clinical, this was a randomized trial that was published in JAMA uh, called the SPACE trial. It was published, it was actually performed at the VA. Um, it showed that people who were actually getting opioids instead of other safer um, pills, such as NSAIDs or ibuprofen, were actually the patients with the opioid group were more likely to have more intense pain uh, than in the other group. And part of this is because um, that opioids, that we develop very quick tolerance and dependence on opioids, that our body's receptors multiply and that the same supply uh, just doesn't do it for us. The other thing is that our bodies innately have this really rich system of making their own opioids. In fact, you know, and, and, and those are central to our way of being. They are, these opioids are the reason why um, most things actually don't hurt us. Like I'm sitting on this chair right now and it doesn't hurt uh, my, 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 my back right now um, in this moment or, or, or even other things such as things that give us joy. So for example, when a mother holds her child, for example, that, that feeling of goodness that they feel is actually in part mediated by the opioids that our body itself makes to give us that feeling uh, of warmth and of tenderness and social connectedness. Mm. And yet when we take an opioid, the dose that we get in a pill is so much higher than anything that our bodies can create. 
not only do opioids rob us of our ability to manage our everyday aches and pains over time, but they actually take away that ability to feel joy and warmth and social mm -hmm. connectedness. Um, having said that, I do think that there are patients for whom opioids work um, and that a uh, we should not take a blunt approach towards getting people off of opioids because that also can be dangerous if we do not offer people alternatives. Uh, but I think this just goes to show that if we continue to treat acute chronic pain like acute pain, we're going to have missteps. And one of those missteps certainly was how much opioids were prescribed in this country for chronic pain. Well, Lloyd writes, has Dr. Verite tried acupuncture? Like many of my traditional Chinese medical doctor colleagues, I went into it because of my own pain and illness. Patients see me for pain all the time. The psychological interconnection of physical pain and emotion is well documented by Chinese medicine journals that date back thousands of years. Modern researchers have observed that acupuncture has the ability to, quote, rewire and heal the neural pathways that deal with pain and dysfunction. So, Dr. Verite, what are sort of better ways to treat chronic pain? Is acupuncture one of those things? You mentioned hypnotherapy earlier. You're also mentioning sort of touch and, and empathy. What are you finding as you look into this more deeply? So, so before I start, I think it's what's important. One of the things that I've come to is that there's no one silver bullet for pain. And I don't think that there ever is going to be one, but that the way forward is really thinking about bringing as much options as possible for patients so that we can give them the widest array of options and figure out which one might help. But there are some therapies that I think and some approaches that I work that work better than other. And let me use acupuncture as an example. So there, there, this, this was a trial that was to me was, I think, so eye-opening. Um, so this was a trial of acupuncture versus something called sham acupuncture, in which they basically showed that they, 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 they did maneuvers that were similar to acupuncture, but didn't really follow the practice. Um, and they found that the professionally performed acupuncture was not better than the sort of simulated acupuncture. But what they did then was then they had a third arm. Uh, in the trial, and this was called uh, enhanced acupuncture. And in this, what the person performing the procedure did was that they didn't just do the procedure, but they talked to the patient. They asked them how they were doing. They asked them about their day. They asked them about how the procedure was making them feel. They really, really connected to the patient uh, using using a, a, a guide that had been created to sort of show empathy, to, sh to, to model behaviors that would engender a sense of kindness. And suddenly this, this group did so much better than any other group. And I think it goes to this idea that, you know, we've all heard about the placebo effect, which can be extremely profound. And one of the interesting things is that the placebo effect, especially in America, is actually going up over time, suggesting that we are becoming increasingly suggestible to medical intervention. But the secret sauce in the placebo is the physician and, it's, and the nurse and the clinician who's seeing the person in pain and attending to their needs, showing that they care, going out of their way to make them feel heard or seen. And which is why I think one of the goals of medicine should be that we should try and enhance our own placebogenic qualities as physicians, as nurses, to think about how can we provide people more comfort? In fact, the placebo effect 
is so strong that even when patients are, are told that what they are receiving is a placebo, what, when they're given a medicine that has a label placebo on it, but if it is done in an environment that is kind and empathetic and compassionate, the patients actually get a significant benefit just from that medical ritual rooted in empathy. So I really do think that kindness and empathy have a very, very important role to play if we are going to get over, um, um, uh, if you're going to help people in chronic pain. And, and you, can, you, can, you can incorporate empathy and kindness in any practice. So let me give you another example. One of the things that I believe in extremely strongly uh, is exercise and the role of exercise in overcoming chronic pain. And in one clinical trial, what they did was, uh, and this trial was interesting because it actually had a patient who was part of designing the trial. There was a group of physical therapists who were sort of traditionally trained. But then they had another group that had been trained in what's called acceptance therapy. Now, acceptance therapy is a form of cognitive behavioral therapy in which what you do is instead of having the patient focus only on the pain and only on con controlling the pain, it helps, it shifts their focus to live, having them live their life to the fullest despite the pain, living with their body in pain and yet doing as much as they can to do the things that they like doing that give them joy. And what they found was that these, that this more enhanced type of physical therapy that was rooted in acceptance therapy, and again, these were not professional therapists, the patients in this arm did so much better. In fact, they needed less exercise, less sessions, because they're having a much better response. So really, I think, I think exercise is going to be vital, although for many patients, exercise or physical therapy can be expensive. Uh, many people, it's hard to get out uh, of home. So thinking about online options or telehealth options for physical therapy is going to be really, really important. Uh, acceptance therapies really, I think, has to be at the heart of any approach that we have for patients with chronic pain. And some of the best conversations I've had and some of the things I learned most were actually from pain psychologists. And again, these are people who help pain specialists and work in an interdisciplinary environment to help people live better despite the pain. And I think that's something that we'll just have to incorporate in our practice um, as both as patients, but also as a health system. We're exploring pain with Dr. Heder Verreich, and you're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Just underscoring your point about uh, accessibility and affordability, Jessica writes, I'm a primary care physician who ran a pain group and had many chronic pain patients at my clinic. The most heartbreaking thing was how few alternatives to opioids these patients had. These were all Medi-Cal or Medicare patients with limited financial resources, so they had very little access to acupuncture, massage, chiropractic treatments, and not much in the way of physical therapy either. Go it ahead. Sounds like you want like to comment. I, could have, yeah. I, I, feel, I feel like I could have written this question myself <laughs> uh, because the, 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 when I say that we lack in empathy, it's not just interpersonal empathy, but our entire health system lacks it. Um, and we know that if you create a model that is patient-centered, that patients are going to do better. And I'll give you an example that exists right here in this country, which is the VA health system, which I work for. So in the United States today, there are only 74 accredited pain rehab centers in the entire country. Um, and yet uh, one of the leading uh, sort of sources of, of, of high quality pain care is the VA and the VA transformed itself. The VA used to be at the forefront of uh, 
prescribing opioids, but when they realized the harms, they did a reevaluation. And what they then invested a lot of their resources in was in fact doing exactly that, providing patients resources like access to exercise, like access to acupuncture, like access to hypnosis. And in fact, which, which now means that the VA has become the leading or the best health system for patients with chronic pain and have been able to reduce safely the number of their patients taking uh, opioids to a very, very great extent. So it is doable. We can have, we can, this is not just a pipe dream. We can have a health system that puts patients ahead of profit, that centers itself in kindness and empathy. Yet, one of the re- what, what we're seeing is that it is much faster to give a prescription and much more lucrative to do a procedure. What you don't have to show is whether any of those approaches help. And yet the evidence-based approaches that I've just mentioned are the ones that insurance companies will give a lot of pushback for, or that patients will have to pay a pretty high copay for, or that we just don't have enough because, again, they're not well reimbursed the way uh, other interventions are, and they just don't make financial mm. sense. And so I really hope that it's this is, this is, uh, to, to, to help get over this, it's not just going to be doctors and nurses just deciding today that, oh, they're going to be kinder to chronic pain patients because that's what we want to do. But we also want to work and live in a health system that incentivizes that, that makes it easier for us to do exactly that. Well, Tank writes, as an assigned female at birth person with multiple chronic conditions, I've taken my decades of negative experiences regarding my pain and turn them into helping my patients with theirs. I listen to them. I believe them. I'm empathetic. I don't rush them. I hold space for them. This alone leads to better outcomes. In many ways, um, Dr. Vareich, as you say in your book, you're, you're hoping to move us to a future in which even if we hurt, we don't suffer. And uh, I appreciate you being on today. Thank you so much. No, thank you so much for uh, having me talk about this. And I, and I really hope that this book becomes a vehicle uh, that allows us to help patients in chronic pain uh, be better. Dr. Heder Vereich, a physician at Brigham and Women's Hospital and the VA Boston Healthcare System, also an assistant professor at Harvard Medical School. His new book is The Song of Our Scars, The Untold Story of Pain. Thank you, Dr. Vereich. Thank you, listeners, for sharing your experiences and also your questions and comments. And my thanks to Susie Britton, who produced today's segment. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. 
Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.